my uncle who uh, passed away a number of years ago, um, he used to run a, a shop on Venice Beach in in LA. I remember visiting him once. It was like crazy, you know, if you've ever been to Venice Beach, it's quite a scene there. And he was in his 40s and he married a French girl who was 20 years younger than him. And um, and it was interesting because every time, like several times, there was an earthquake in Southern California, she'd like run back to France with all his money. So I don't know, the first time, okay, second time, not so sure, right? So uh, anyway, the point of that is this, no one likes to be used, right? Maybe you've had a painful experience of someone who used you, who didn't really care about you ultimately or respect you for who you were, but they were just using you because of what you could do for them. And this passage we're going to look at in John um, is actually going to confront us with a question of why are you pursuing God? Are you pursuing Jesus for him or are you pursuing him for your own ends and for your own agenda? And I think as we go through here, um, this passage and Jesus' conversation with this group of people will hopefully cause us to pause and think and really ask ourselves, where are we at? when it comes to following Jesus. So just to catch you up real quick, if you have your Bibles, you can start turning over to John chapter 6. I'm going to remind you of where we're at in the, the account. This is the fourth gospel, the fourth account of Jesus' life. And last week we looked at perhaps Jesus' most famous miracle, which was the feeding of the 5,000, followed immediately by Jesus walking on water and approaching the disciples at night. And they freaked out. You remember that? And, uh, and then they realized Jesus was with them. And it's amazing what the, how their courage changed when they recognized Jesus was with them. But like we said last week, like the stories, um, the miracles, as awesome as they are and as powerful as they are. And I mean, he, Jesus became so famous for these things that even people that hated Christianity wrote about these things that Jesus did and these wonders that he performed, right? But as amazing as those were, they weren't actually the point he was trying to make. And they weren't the point that the Apostle John, as he writes his account of Jesus' life, the main point wasn't, there, there's a deeper thing that, and, and really these amazing accounts we looked at last week, and we really looked at sort of the human aspect of it. Um, really, they are to set the stage for what we're beginning to get to this week and next week. Um, anybody remember um, that old uh, cartoon? I remember it, Shrek. Did anybody grow up with Shrek? Yeah? A few of you? Yeah? I thought so. There's this, like, scene, and I had to look it up on YouTube because <laughs> it's so cute. But uh, Shrek is talking to the donkey, um, and the donkey, they're going back and forth. It's classic. If you haven't seen it, you should, like, dust it off. If you have young kids, dust it off and show it to them. Although um, PG, like, back in the day, is different than PG now. So just language warning for the little kids, right? Okay. Um, but anyway... Uh, so there's this ogre, Shrek, right? This green ogre. And he's having this conversation with this donkey. And then he, he, he tells the donkey, he's like, hey, for your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think. Ogres are like onions. They have layers. Anybody remember that scene? Layers, right? 
And, and here's the point behind this is there's something deeper going on. There's multiple layers here. And if you don't remember actually verse 4, what we started with last week, you're going to actually miss the whole point Jesus is making in the midst of the incredible accounts of the miracles. And that's John chapter 6, verse 4. says this, the, the Jewish Passover festival was near. So John's walking us through. And over and over, he's going to talk about different festivals, huge parts of the Jewish life, day-to-day life, the, the way they would remember their history, the way they would worship God. And the festival, the festival of the Passover, this is meant to set up this whole chapter, the two amazing things we looked at last week, and then the rest of this really long, complex, and really powerful sermon that Jesus is going to preach in this conversation he's going to have with these people. And what we're going to discover a little later in the chapter is that Jesus is actually saying these things. He's in the synagogue in a town called Capernaum, and he's speaking to the people there. And they would have been studying and reading the scriptures during this specific time of the year that talked about the deliverance and the departure from Egypt and their flight into the desert as, as God brought them through the Red Sea. See, Passover is this time of remembrance. And so this is going to bring context. You remember manna in the wilderness? Yeah, this is going to bring context to the feeding of the 5,000, and it's going to bring like a deeper meaning and significance to Jesus having the power over the wind and the waves and walking on the ocean that he, or well, this is the Sea of Galilee, uh, but walking on the water that he created, right? Because if that's hard for you to wrap your mind around that Jesus walked on water, um, he created it. It's really not that big of a deal for him to sort of step in and like do what he wants, right? If, if there's a God that created the whole universe and your only real other option is to believe in that everything spontaneously emerged from nothing, um, which to me is a lot larger leap of faith, right? It's not such a far stretch to imagine that this God can kind of do what he wants, and he can tweak and bend the the laws of nature here and there, right? So anyway, but all of that is to remind them and make them think of something and recognize the deeper thing that God is doing in this time. To remember the, the, the sorrow, Passover, you know, if you've ever done a Seder, and we might do one as a church here, maybe this year we're talking about it, um, which would be really cool. But, you, you know, you do these... My family, uh, we've done this with our kids and uh, their grandparents, uh, one of their, with their grandparents over the years. It's been fun, like just remembering and doing this meal that commemorates, and it's all a signpost pointing towards Jesus. And it has such an amazing meaning and significance. And so, you know, like on this plate, we have these little like plastic flies and these red hots that, that, are like represent boils and all the plagues, you know, and there's little things. And then you dip your finger in the, in the wine or the juice and you put these drops on and it's kind of a cool ceremony. But the whole point is to draw you back and remember um, this amazing deliverance that God brought about and to remember the blood of the lamb that was, that was slain and sprinkled so that you, the judgment could pass over the people. That's, that's the meaning. That's the context. N.T. Wright, a famous New Testament scholar, says this. He says, the bread and the fish 
that Jesus had distributed to the crowds were there to lead the eye, the mind, and the heart to the true gift of God to his people. They were there to open up their understanding to the fact that the new Passover, the new Exodus, was taking place right in front of them. And that's the point. That's the larger thing that John and that Jesus are trying to communicate. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to pick it up where we left off last week. John chapter 6, verse 22. It says this, the next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but they had gone away alone. They're like, wait a minute, what happened, right? Verse 23, then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Like, they're doing the math and it doesn't add up. We saw the disciples paddle away, row away in the boat, and Jesus go up the mountain, and now he's here. Hmm. Wow, this guy's pretty crazy, right? But this took a lot of work for them to come find Jesus. They were very impressed by what they saw. They were very impressed by the sign that Jesus did as they found him. they They were very impressed with this miracle, with the feeding, with the fact that they got to eat this whole big meal. In fact, it says they were so impressed that they they thought this must be the prophet that Moses predicted, and so they were going to come and make him king by force. Remember, it said that last week. They had an agenda for Jesus, and Jesus knew it. And Jesus, that's when Jesus sent his disciples away and dismissed the crowd and went up the mountain. Verse 26, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Like, you're hungry. You're not coming for the preaching. You're coming for the pizza. Not, not you guys, but maybe. Okay, we have a few. Like, yeah, Saturday sounding good. There, Jesus is like, you had an all-you-can-eat buffet. Remember, 12 baskets. They all ate as much as they could. There were 12 baskets left over, which is very significant. Nothing went to waste. They, they, they ate their fill. You remember going to all-you-can-eat buffets as a kid? Yeah. It's funny because I'm like, I, I don't anymore. I'm just like, mm, yeah, right. I'm getting a little picky in my older age. You know, appreciate the finer foods. Uh, you know, and uh, but when you're a kid, you don't care about the quality, do you? It's just like all you can eat, and you eat all you can eat. And I had a friend uh, from Africa came and visited. I worked with him over in Africa. His name's Satini, and uh, first time he'd ever been to the states, and just a great guy. Um, and he came over, and I picked him up at the airport, and we ate on the way home. And he it just blew his mind, like free refills out of the fountain drinks that fast food restaurants. It's just like, he couldn't even wrap his mind around. He's like, this would never work in Africa. We'd just go back and back, right? Because for a people in poverty, when all of a sudden you've been given something like this that satisfies a very real need, we, we don't, you know, we have not, for most of us, we have never really experienced true hunger. Some, there, there may be a few that have, because we know that is an issue, even in our local community, right? Um, 
but for many of us, we've never really um, gone hungry. I mean, we, we complain to our parents, like my kids complain to me, I'm starving, right? And they're like, you're not starving. And yeah, now I tell my kids that, and it's, it's funny how you turn into your parents as you grow, grow up. Um, but yeah, so, so, but for somebody that's in this kind of culture of poverty, actually, it was a really big deal what Jesus did for him. Like, it, you had to work to eat to survive. And food was a vi- very difficult to come by. And so Jesus, as, as he f- filled them up, he looks at them now as they come, and he goes, I don't really think you're here because of the signs. You're here because you got your belly filled. See, the sign, and Jesus calls it a sign all throughout, and you're supposed to be counting by now. I think this was the fourth or fifth, right? Fourth and fifth sign that we saw last week. The feeding of the 5,000 and, um, and the walking on the water. And Jesus says this was actually meant to be pointing you to, to something. It, it was pointing you to something, but you didn't get it. You didn't get it. See, this miracle it didn't move them. It just caused them to go deeper into their own agenda, right? They had an idea of what Messiah would do when Messiah came, and it included political revolution and throwing out Rome. And later we're going to find out that this wasn't what Jesus was about. As Jesus would say, my kingdom is not yet of this world. Right? There'll be a day when Jesus return. And, and in the meantime, the kingdom of God grows as hearts willingly embrace him and follow him. But they had an agenda. They wanted to use Jesus for their own agenda. I mean, they were excited about him, but they were excited. And Jesus recognizes, no, actually, you're excited for for a whole different set of reasons right now. You want your belly filled. You want somebody who will meet your every need and give you everything you want in life. It's your agenda. St. Augustine said this, How many there are who seek Jesus only to gain some temporary benefit. Jesus is scarcely ever sought for Jesus' sake. It's pretty powerful. It's pretty probing. See, because there's this... um, there's this tension when we seek Jesus because we, we, he offers us life. He offers us salvation. He offers us blessing. But it doesn't always look. In fact, it doesn't often look the way we think. And for so many, that's a stumbling block. The people approach Jesus. People pursue Jesus. They seek Jesus because of what Jesus can do for them. And they realize it's their agenda. And Jesus... I. Get on board with my agenda. And what happens for so many people is when Jesus doesn't get on board with their agenda, they abandon Jesus. That's what we're going to look at next week as we finish this chapter out. See, seeking what Jesus can do for you is a very different thing than truly seeking Jesus. And it's totally natural to seek him for what he can do for you, right? You want to serve him. He promises eternal reward. There are reasons. He doesn't just say, follow me. There is a reward, but sometimes it is eternal. Meaning sometimes you don't experience it in this life. Sometimes it's not tangible, right? He says, hey, in another gospel, um, 
I can't remember which one. It may be in two of them. I think it's Matthew. He says, hey, for those that you've left everything, the disciples asked, we've left everything for you. He's like, don't worry, there's going to be a reward. In this life, the richness of the relationship with me and with other people, it would be like tenfold or a hundredfold the relationships that you've experienced that didn't bring life. Some of you have experienced that. You've experienced such richness in, in um, your community you've had with some other believers and, and just the sweetness of your relationship with God that it's just fed your soul in a way that, you know, a hundred other friendships in the old life could never do. They always left you feeling empty, right? And Jesus, as he, as he, as he looks at these people, he, he says, what's your agenda? Why are you seeking me? What's your motivation? What's your motivation here tonight, church? Why are you seeking Jesus? Is there a desire for relationship, to know him, to come in and actually worship, lift your heart up and worship your God? Or is it about what he can do for you? See, he asks us to bring our requests to him and pray for but so many times that's where people leave it. It's seeking God. It's seeking his hand, not his face, right? It's seeking him for what he can do, for the thing you're asking him to do. And for so many people, the minute he does it, you forget about him. You notice that? In fact, I wonder if sometimes the, the reason why God allows certain things to come into our lives is because it actually turns our heart to seek him. Just speculation. Because it seems like for so many of us, we, we passionately pursue him when life is rough. But as soon as things are good, we forget him. We walk away. And Jesus knows that's the tendency in these people's hearts. So he goes on. He says this in verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Hey, you're going to work hard in this life. That's kind of a given, right? Life is a lot of work. It's hard. He says, but you, there's a way to do it that is for something that actually satisfies, for something that actually fills that hole inside. What are you working for? Like, where is the main, where is your uh, main focus, your main attention, the intent of your heart? Is it all on getting the next thing? Is it all on um, that next rung on the ladder? Is it on this next level of success or status or the new upgrade to the house or the new house upgrade or the new car or the bigger boat or whatever, right? For some, that's like, oh, none of that, right? But the next relationship. All those things, the point Jesus is making here is they're spoiled, not just like eternally. We all at some level understand and we know that the things we're, folk, we're so intent on right now, like I look at my kids and the things they want, right? A 12-year-old and a 9-year-old. And, and I guarantee you, when they're 16 or 18, they're going to look back at the things that they just wanted to save their pennies for right now, and they're going to be like, well, that was kind of dumb, right? 
Right now, it's really cool, though. And I think Jesus would say to us, where's your heart? Where's your focus? Where's your attention placed? Because we all tend to tell ourselves the same lie, that if we could just get there, if we could just get that, then, then it would be good. And I think Jesus would ask us, Where, what are we, where's your focus? Where's your pursuit? Because our, our delusion comes, we, we know, like all the stuff, you know, you can't take it with you. You came into this world in your birthday suit. You're going to leave the world in the birthday suit probably, you know. Maybe you'll have a suit on, but that'll rot too. Or <laughs> you can't take it with you. We all know that, right? That includes your status, your fame, your reputation, all those things. Not just your physical possessions. But the, the delusion comes in us thinking like, but right now, it's going to fill that place inside my heart and in my soul. It'll bring me that satisfaction that thing is missing. And just like I look at my kids and they get the one thing that they've wanted so bad and they save their pennies and they got it. And then literally it's like the next day it's a new thing. And most of us are just bigger kids. The price tag just went up. The things got bigger. But we still have this delusion that if I could just get here, and it's like a treadmill. Have you noticed that? Because it never ends, does it? Because there's always someone, as you look at, you know, as you look at people on your right or left, there's always someone that has more than you. Have you noticed that? No matter how successful you are, somebody's more successful than you. Somebody to look over and go, oh, I wish I had what they had. If I could just get that, then I'd, then I, then I'd experience this, this sense of peace. And Jesus says it's, it's spoiling, it's perishing. Not just that you're going to leave it all behind, it'll be worth nothing. Even right now, it's not filling that, that place inside your soul, is it? And so are you going to put all of your attention on that? Are you going to put all of your effort and all of your hope for fulfillment into that thing? See, Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount, um, famous passage. He says, hey, there's actually, you have the opportunity to invest your life. Because see, your time, like, literally is your life. We just think oftentimes about, you know, investing financial, you know, um, or giving or generosity. And, and that's all part of what Jesus calls us to do, to live generous lives. But you have the opportunity to invest your life in something that lasts beyond today and that actually brings satisfaction today that doesn't just go away. Have you noticed like some of the experiences where you've gone and, and helped a family, like, like Homes of Hope Trip or some of these things where you've gone and, and you've served? Maybe it's just in your everyday life. Um, talk to somebody this, this week and he's like, she goes and checks in on this couple in their, in their 80s every day. And there's something about that. No, it's not always fun. No, you don't always want to do it. But I guarantee that there's a satisfaction in there that doesn't just go away. That there's, that there's things you do, the way you do it is unto the Lord that you look back and you, you find a satisfaction that doesn't just evaporate and go away. 
There's a way to live your life when it comes to your time, when it comes to your talent, the gifts, the things God's given you, when it comes to your treasure, the possessions he's given you. There's a way to live where that stuff can actually be invested in something that will last. The question is, are we doing it? Verse 28 says, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. You want to boil it down? You remember Exodus? Remember this whole passage, Passover? It's making us think of Exodus and coming through the the Red Sea and, and this covenant that they made with God where God says, here's the covenant. I have brought you into the family, so to speak, right? And here's the family rules. Now, will you do it? Will you follow me? Will you obey? And see, in the new covenant that Jesus is initiating, that Jesus will initiate, Like, what is the work of God? It's to believe in Jesus, that you would believe in him. And in Greek, this is significant. It's the same um, kind of combination of of, uh, Greek words, a little different tense, as in John 3.16, believe in. The Apostle John takes these two Greek words that you can't find in any of ancient Greek literature this way, and he sticks them together, and he conveys this thing, because just believing like acknowledging something exists isn't what John really is the heart of what John is trying to communicate here. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, he writes, um, so you believe in God. Congratulations. So do the demons. They tremble. But good on you, right? So it's a, it's a belief that actually does something in your life. It's not just going, oh, yeah, Jesus, Jesus was a good moral person. Jesus was a good teacher. It's believing that Jesus has come, the Son of God, lived and died for you, and fully placing your trust in him. And if you do that, you're entering into a new covenant with him, the covenant where the work of God is to trust in him. And that will necessarily create change and transformation in your life, not as something you work up or you work for, but as an outflow of the new life that he's putting within you that he's birthing within you. But it, but it makes a difference in your life. There's active trust going on. I usually, I like using the, the example of a stool that you can acknowledge there's a stool there, but there's a difference between that and sitting in it, right? That's trust. That's what John's trying to convey. And trust leads to following Jesus. It leads to acting on your faith. It leads to when, when your will bumps up against Jesus. In fact, we're going to see this next week because this is so powerful. When your will bumps up against Jesus and Jesus says something that is hard for you or, or rubs you the wrong way, the question is, are you going to go with Jesus? Or are you going to go, no, I'm going to go with what I feel? Are you going to go, are you going to follow Jesus? Or are you going to say, nah, it's not worth it? The work of God is to believe in, to trust in the one he sent. Do you believe in him today? Are you trusting him? Are you trusting him? Verse 30, so they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? 
What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So right away, they had just seen the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at last week, was actually um, 10 to 20,000 because of the way they did math and counted the, just the dudes, right? So we're talking about a huge crowd, and they all got, like, all-you-can-eat buffet for a huge crowd. I mean, the good buffet, right? You know, the one where you go back and they have all the desserts and the yummy. Actually, I think it was just bread and fish. But anyway, they loved it. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden they're like, but that wasn't enough. Show us another slide. That was a cool trick, Jesus. Do it again. Do another one. And see, this is the nature of things that we think will bring satisfaction and meaning in our lives, it's never enough, is it? It's also the nature of a faith that's based on just powerful spiritual encounters. You know what? Those are good. Sometimes those are the spark that get us on the path to follow Jesus. Sometimes God encounters us in powerful ways and it changes our, our lives. I've had a few of those moments. But you know what? It's not enough. That if your faith is based solely on powerful encounters with God and goosebumps, you know, and, and like f the feeling side of things. Feelings are good. He wants us to feel those things, right? That's why I love worship. I love what God is meant to be experienced, not just like mental, intellectual, you know, we study and we know. But there's an embracing, there's a love, and there needs to be an emotional component to that, right? That's part of it. And pe different people lean different ways, and that's okay. But you're meant to actually have affection and love for God in your heart. And they're just like, hey, uh, show us another sign. See, miracles alone rarely produce lasting faith. Like just seeing God do something powerful rarely produces lasting faith. And so here's what basically what they're saying is, hey, that was a pretty cool trick yesterday. But now... Come on, Jesus, you got to admit, like, it wasn't quite up to par with what Moses did out in the wilderness when just, like, vapor manna out of nothing just sort of appeared on the ground. Could you do that for us? Because we're kind of hungry again. See what's going on here. They want more. And they're comparing him because they believed, hey, this guy, might maybe he's the prophet Moses is talking about. And actually, in, in the synagogue, in first century rabbinic teaching, uh, they knew, based on Deuteronomy 18, where Moses says, hey, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. They believe this. There, in fact, there was, uh, there's, this, there's all kinds of historical commentary by the rabbis on the, on the Old Testament, on the Hebrew Scriptures, which is the Old T Testament in our Bible. And they, they believe this. This is one of them said this. As the first redeemer caused manna to descend, so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. So they believed, hey, come on, do, you, do your thing. In fact, they believe there is like a storehouse of manna in heaven. And in the Exodus, it was opened up. And then at the end of time, the treasury of manna shall again descend from on high. And they will eat of it in those years. So they believed. And Jesus says that's what's happening. Manna actually was a sign. It was pointing to something. 
See, Deuteronomy 8 says this, remember how the Lord your God led you in the wilderness to humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. God did mighty, mighty things, and yet the people still grumbled and rebelled against him. It says he fed you with manna. Why? To teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. In other words, uh, the manna was cool, but it was just pointing you towards something, a deeper truth and a deeper significance, and that is found in the word of God, in the word of God. And so the rabbis begin to associate manna with the word of God. And do you remember how the book of John starts? In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, what Jesus is doing here is a deeper thing. 32, verse 32. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gave you or gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, no, 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 it wasn't Moses. We humans like to, to fascinate on the other humans, don't we? So we, we love, you know, whether it's a pastor with a microphone or whether it's, you know, a, a great spiritual leader or people like Billy Graham. I mean, and it's, it's good to, to respect, like, people that do great things for God, but not to, to put your, your hope in them, Right? Because what? It's ultimately not them doing the thing. It's God at work. It's God at work. Which is why when God calls you to step up and follow his leading, and, and like we looked at last week, when he calls you to step up and follow his leading and step into something that maybe feels intimidating or scary to you and you don't know how it's going to all, all go, um, that's why you can do it because it's not you. It's him who's at work in you to will and to work for his good purpose. It's him who can do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, right? It's him who works. It's his provision. And he's still in doing amazing things all around this world. Sometimes we look at like the way culture is, is, is seemingly just... Um, moving so far away from God and the things of God and we get depressed and it's hard. I got to tell you, the kingdom of God is growing at unprecedented rates around this world. We don't always see it right here and now. But in places like Brazil and Korea and these different places, man, they're becoming the epicenters of Christian activity right now. There's revivals. There's all sorts of things going on. Never put God in a box. Never say it's over. In fact, Tim Keller, it's right in the, he wrote in an article on how to reach the West again. He says, everything is unprecedented once. He said, there was never a reformation until there was. There was never anything like a great awakening until there was. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's no reason to believe this promise has an expiration date. See, he wants to use your life to reach those around you in your circle. To bring the love of Jesus into people's lives. And so he tells them about the bread. The bread 
that is come down from heaven and the bread of God is a person. This is what the man who was pointing to. Verse 34, sir, they said, always give us this bread. And then this blew, blew their minds. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. Like the thing that you're longing for, the the satisfaction that you're trying to find is actually found in a depth of relationship with Jesus. It's not found where you're looking for it, where you're striving to to get it. And you know that because you've tried And every time you get the thing that you think is going to bring it, it doesn't. You know that. And Jesus says, come to me, right? That's what Isaiah 55, Jesus quotes in this passage. We read that during worship. Come to me, all who are thirsty. And and buy bread and wine that you don't have to pay for. It's a free gift. Seek God where he may be found. There's all these parallels in this passage. As Jesus quotes this famous messianic passage. This is the first of Jesus' seven I am statements. And every time he says them, it riles up the crowd. Because Jesus quotes this and it draws their mind back. I am The way he puts it, the way he says it, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. This is bringing us back to Exodus chapter 3. If you remember in our series, when when God reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses, and how does he reveal himself? God's name and best pronunciation we know is Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. Who are you? He says, I am that I am. Jesus makes incredibly bold claims over and over and over. I am. I am. N.T. Wright says, until they recognize who Jesus really is, they may be fed with bread and fish, but there is a deep hunger inside of them which will never be satisfied. And you know what I know is no matter how many great meals we eat, it's never enough, is it? You notice that? Christmas dinner. I mean, Jesus comes and says, I am the bread of life. This is the staple in their culture. The staple. And Jesus said, that's me. If he was coming to, you know, I don't know, to Asia, he probably would have said, I am the rice of life. If he was coming to my house, he would have said, I'm the steak of life. The thing you can't live without, right? I'm what you need. I'm what you need. And, And humanity... Humanity has this idea. Our culture has this idea. And man, as followers of Jesus, it's so hard for us not to fall into this. That if I can just learn the right stuff, you know, read the right self-help books and listen to the right podcasts and work out a little bit more, I can evolve into the best version of myself and then I will be satisfied. 
And although you may make some good progress and actually, you know, get healthier and whatever, and, and there may be some good things in there, it won't fill the hole in your heart, the void. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite quotes, he says this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Not powerful? We all have desires and longings in our heart that nothing in this world can satisfy. And Jesus says, I am the bread. I'm the thing you've been hungry for. He goes on. 36, but, but as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There's great comfort in that verse for those of you that feel like you've failed one too many times. I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. And see, when Jesus says, I'll never draw, drive them away, and they're celebrating Passover and the Passover lamb, this language, where, where else in Scripture do we see someone driven away? Well, all the way back at the beginning of the, the beginning of the story, Genesis 3, where humanity chooses rebellion against God, chooses to walk away and has to be driven from the garden so that he won't live forever in the fallen state of his sin. And see, the original lie and deception of Satan is that you can be like God. It's this idea that we call uh, self-actualization. It's tied very closely to this. In fact, there's a philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche, He's a German philosopher. Um, you, you, you've probably heard his name, but you're like, might not know anything about him. But a lot of your thinking has been shaped by him. He wrote, wrote on uh, good and evil and the end of religion and modern society and the, the concept of a superman, superhuman. He says, we want to become human beings who are new, unique, incomparable, who give themselves laws, who create themselves. And see, God tells them, if you eat of it, you will surely die. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. That there will be a spiritual death, that something will shift and change in that instant when you rebel against the one true God. If you eat of it, you will surely die, right? And Jesus says, a new day is here. And all who believe in me and trust in me and come to me, will never be driven away. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. And so in chapter 4, remember, to the woman at the well, he says, I will give you water and you won't thirst again. And now to these 
people. He says, there's a bread that can satisfy. And there's something that can fill that hunger in your soul. And that something is me. It's me. And it comes in relationship. And the work of the Father is to simply trust. You've been trying to work it up. You've been trying to check off boxes. No, it's to trust, to listen to me, to believe me, to respond to me in trust, to rest, to quit striving, to simply follow. It's about relationship. It's not transactional. It's about relationship. He wants a relationship with you. Are you pursuing him to know him? Or has it all become a transaction? Go to church. Maybe I'm disciplined in these spiritual disciplines. He says, I want a relationship with you. This isn't a business deal. You do this. I give you this. It's about relationship. And it's only in relationship. As your life encounters him in a deeper way, as you get to know him in a deeper way, as daily you begin to shift your focus from, from, from thinking that you're going to find satisfaction in everything else and just using him to get your agenda done. Oh, God, do this for me, this for me, this for me. But when you actually come to him saying, I want to know you, love you, experience you, that can fill that longing in your soul in a way that you won't thirst again. You won't be hungry again. Eat of this, he says, and find life. Eat of that, thinking you can find it, autonomy in yourself. That brings death. Eat of me and find life. Discover and embrace the kind of life that was lost. Would you stand? We're going to sing this song, and then I'll come back up and pray for you. And I encourage you just spend a little bit of time in prayer. Lord, I just lift up my friends here. Lord, I know everybody's in a different spot, but I pray specifically for that person here tonight that their soul just feels so dry and dead within them that they would call out to you and then you would encounter them in such a way that they know, oh, you're here. That you would refresh them, you would restore them. That they would begin to find that satisfaction in that relationship, in a growing relationship with you, Lord. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.